Welcome to the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast, hosted by Bimi Abudu, the founder and managing partner of BMGA Enterprise Limited, a finishing school for the fourth industrial revolution. On this podcast, great leaders share the career path and leadership journey of triumphs and challenges with the intention of fostering and nurturing the leadership potential of the next generation of leaders. From moguls in the entertainment industry to entrepreneurs, there's a learning point for every aspiring leader. Today's episode features Ijoma Ogbechi, the Director of Delivery Management at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, with a depth of experience in financial technology sales, large strategic account management, relationship management, and large program management. In addition to driving technology, she's passionate about and heavily involved in diversity initiatives. She is also the founder of Avaver, an online edit of contemporary and luxury women's fashion from African-owned and led designer brands. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with, I mean, just take us back to the very beginning of your career. Before you were in the U.S., tell us about your, the journey of your career beginning from when you were in Nigeria. So my journey really goes way back from my childhood. So I was born uh, in the U.K., Manchester. My parents lived in Manchester for a while. They, they studied in Manchester. We lived there for a few years, then moved back to Nigeria. But my stint in Nigeria wasn't for so long because I started off my primary education in Malaysia, actually, because my dad used to, was global head of sales and marketing at the time for Nestle Africa. So we traveled quite a bit as a family. So I went to primary school in Malaysia, um, then moved back to Nigeria, finished off my primary education in Nigeria, attended high school at Federal Oweri in Imo State. I was there for six years. Then the plan was to move back to London to continue my undergrad, um, or rather to start my undergrad. But um, due to timing, uh, the decision was made by my parents for me to attend University of Benin. But I was in Benin for all of six months, and that didn't go so well because of all the strike. And we then decided to move back to the UK. So as you said earlier, I went to uh, Middlesex University for my BSc in Business Economics. And I did an executive MBA at the London Business School. So my career, I initially wanted to be in the medical field. I had aspirations of being a doctor. Yes, I, I, I guess it was the Ada in me. So Ada means first daughter of, um, of an Igbo family. So I think that aspect in me wanted to go into the medical field. But over time, I quickly realized that chemistry and I didn't just vibe really well. <laughs> so I love biology. I love yeah. physics. Chemistry was a no-no for me. And I loved maths, but I just couldn't grasp chemistry. So I knew the medical field wasn't for me. Then I started exploring my other talents. So economics, I enjoyed. Literature, I enjoyed. English, I enjoyed. And I quickly figured out that I had a knack for economics and maths as well. So... I decided to then double down on economics. So when I was in Uniben, I actually did economics and statistics. That was what I applied for and I, I got it. Interesting. So when I moved to the UK, I then did business, business economics. Um, so business wow. economics was pretty much, you know, something that I did enjoy and I wanted more of a bachelor in science as opposed to a bachelor in arts because okay. the sciences gave me modules that are a bit more mathematical and I do enjoy maths. So, and I did take advanced maths as well. So that aspect really tailored itself well to my skills. My career started really, I would say before, before I even got my first degree because my dad ran his own companies at some point and I used to intern for him um, when I was in Lagos. And through that internship, you know, it opened my eyes to a multitude of things. One is just seeing how a business is built from scratch. Yeah. and how you're bringing together different variables to execute this one big vision or grand goal. As a young kid, I was a teenager at the time, you know, it was quite interesting to just see the very multifaceted nature of building out a business. So that was the seed of me wanting to also pursue my own business at some point, which I'll get into. But my career started from there, really. So, I, I mean, you have such a unique background, and I want us to touch a little bit more about that because you've had the opportunity to travel extensively. I mean, most people get the opportunity to do their traveling later on in life. It sounds like for you, your background, that was part of, I mean, who you are because of the nature of the job your father had. So you traveled around. I would like you to talk a little bit more about that too because 
one of the things that we're trying to push with the participants as well is the importance of having a global mindset. And I would like you to talk to us a little bit of how that has shaped the way you see the world, how that has shaped the way you think about business. What I, do you think about business? I mean, for someone who is, I know you have a business where, we'll talk about that later, like you said, where um, your customer base is in Nigeria and you have customers here as well. I want to know how your international background has influenced who you are personally and also from a professional standpoint. So for me, as you said, traveling has been an integral part of my life right from childhood. My parents traveled a lot and as a result, the kids traveled with them and we got the love for travel. One of my earliest memories of traveling was just being able to see other cultures and trying to just grasp <coughs> what it meant and how people thought. And I've never really shared this story with anybody, but when I was at Alice Smith International Primary School when we were in Malaysia, my brother and I were the only two black kids um, in that international school in the, prim in the primary section. And, you know, at that point, it dawned on us that we were different, like really different in that community. Mm -hmm. But it despite our differences we still felt like we were part of a larger community and it allowed us to appreciate all the different children and people who attended the primary school who brought different cultures and different accents and different types of foods and different ways of communicating to the table so that was my first foray into fully understanding the differences of people and my parents had business partners friends who were from different races and background so we used to see a lot of people around us that were of different natures. So we didn't really grow up in that typical Nigerian household, so to speak. You know, we had a lot of more exposure beyond our immediate community, which I'm grateful for, because one of the biggest things it teaches you is one, although we're all human and we're all part of the human race, we all have different things that we bring to the table, the way we Absolutely. think, the way we talk, what we eat, what we understand, how we process information. So early on, I had to almost teach, well, remind myself all the time that when I say something, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person received the inf receiving the information understood it. I had to always communicate in a way that other people around me could understand because my way of thinking might not necessarily be the same way of thinking of somebody else. So that was the early stage of just getting immersed into different worlds and different cultures and traveling helped a lot with that, obviously. I really love that because the whole idea of being able to um, embrace different points of view, because regardless, I mean, like you said, we're all humans, but at the end of the day, our backgrounds and who we are factors into um, who we become as adults. So can you touch a little bit more of how that has been beneficial to you? Because the participants we have in this program, all Nigerians, but from different parts of Nigerians, different backgrounds, different experience in life. And in spite of the fact that your experiences could be very different from the experience they've had in life, I want you to touch on how all these learnings you've had over the years from living in different countries, because living in a different country and being a different race has its own challenges that comes with that. And how were you able to sort of embody, take all of that and add that to who you are today? Right. So I'll, I'll bring that down in two aspects. So I said earlier that I went to high school in Nigeria, Nemo State, yes. and I did about six, eight months in the event. Right. Yeah. One thing about federal government colleges is that it, it, it's a melting pot. Oh, well, back then it was a melting pot of different cultures. So you had people from the Igbo part of um, Nigeria, from houses, Yorubas, ethics, like everybody represented under one em emblem, which is the federal government college. In my case, it was Oweri. So that in itself, you know, meant I had to deal with different people with different cultural norms and different backgrounds and interacting with with people that are so different from me taught me quickly about tolerance because this tolerance is so big and, and, and under, under, understated these days because no, no two people are alike. You can Absolutely. never find, even identical twins are not alike. <laughs> yeah. You can raise them the same way, give them the same access to, to tools, information, but the outcome is never going to be the same because that human factor allows itself to make us unique and individual. And that uniqueness and individuality is what's going to help you in your career going forward. And I do hope we touch on that at some point because being unique and being authentic to yourself is one of the biggest factors that you should carry with you through your career. So the first aspect is just going to a diverse school in Nigeria. The second aspect is when I moved back to London and started working in that environment. I remember when I moved back, my, my father told me three things. He goes, you're a triple threat. And I'll ask him to explain, what do you mean by a triple threat? He goes, you're female, 
your black and your confidence. So you're going to have to meet people at each point. The fact that you're female, not all the advantages are going to come to you. You're going to have to go seek them out. The fact that you're black doesn't mean that you're going to, doors are going to open to you. There's certain doors that will <laughs> slam them in <laughs> your face. Yes. So you have to fight to get what's yours. And the fact that you're confident. Yeah. I keep saying if most women had half the confidence of men, we would rule the world. Is that simple? <laughs> my dad kept telling me that those three things are the three things that you're going to have to face challenges in all aspects of your life so moving back to london true to form i did see that but what helped me again was my diversity in thought the fact that i had traveled i had experienced different things i had i had engaged different people even what i learned living in nigeria what we i learned living in malaysia what i learned living back in the uk i was able to draw from those sources and know that when interacting with people or when working with people or when even being in a community with people, you always have to be accepting the thoughts. You always have to be considered, um, 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 you always have to consider the way people approach life. And you also have to understand that communication is a two-way street. So me communicating does not necessarily mean it's translated to the other person. Absolutely. So always meet people where they are when it comes to communicating. Awesome. Okay, so you studied economics. How do you, can you take us through your journey going from economics to where you're now with Bank of America, Maryland? Do you want, can you just connect that dots for us? Because I know you didn't just go from, you went from undergrad, take us through that journey. What happened after you graduated? Okay, um, I'll take you through the journey. It's a very long journey, so I'll kind of like hop <laughs> <laughs> and skip some places. So um, whilst I was in um, Middlesex University studying uh, business economics, um, I, I wanted, I wanted, uh, you know, to do, you know, certain things, maybe just work and get some form of experience in the UK. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I wasn't sure what to do. So I dabbled a bit in retail. I was a sales assistant at River Island. I know nice. River Island still stands, but I was, yes. I was a cashier <laughs> in River Island. That's where I started. Wow. And, and I did that for one summer, and I then did stockists at River Island again. They called me back the next summer and said, hey, if you're free, can you come help us out? I was like, absolutely. But I was still studying, so for me, it was just like extra money that I can use to like buy whatever I wanted to buy. So I had that extra disposable income. But um, after I graduated um, Middlesex University, I had asked myself, you know, where do you, want, where do you want to actually start your career? Because you're in that space where every decision you now make is, is essentially the building block to where you're going to ultimately end up in the next 20, 30 years. Absolutely. I'm not saying that your journey can't pivot along the way, but you're creating your foundation and you want that foundation to be as solid as possible. So the, your educational background always helps as a start, but we all know that there are a lot of successful people out there that don't have um, um, formal education, but they become so successful. But what they do have is thoughtfulness and intention in building that foundation to determine how they want to shape their career and where they want it to end. So in that thought, at the time I graduated, there were a few things happening in the world. Technology was really becoming a big thing. So was finance. So I looked at my economics degree. I had I had, had thoughts of either joining Austin Consulting Group. That was, that was a thought. I wanted to, I looked at McKinsey as well. Um, but as I kept exploring, I found that the things that were more exciting to me were more technology and finance based. So I did a quick stint um, about 12 months or so at a company in London. It's a finance and tech company in London, but I worked in their finance department. And I used that to one, you know, get work experience because on every resume, they keep saying you have to get work experience. You have to get yes. work experience before you hire. So I finally got into this firm and I used it to build my work experience. But what that firm told me quickly was that your career is in your own hands nobody is going to be your greatest advocate other than yourself. So if there's anything that you feel that you want or there's anything that actually you've determined as part of your career path, you should own it and go for it. So spending time there, I quickly realized I wanted bigger, I wanted more, and I wanted better, and I wanted to learn. So constant learning has been part of my ethos of life. And I, I get it from my parents, you know, get it from traveling. You're just naturally inquisitive and you just want to keep, keep um, absorbing information. So immediately I found out that it was time for, for me to move on. 
Um, I put out a few feelers. I heard about this company that is New York based and was opening up a branch in London and they were looking for amazing young talent to come help them build a branch in London. So um, I, I got referred by a friend. I went to the interview. Again, um, just being fully transparent, the interview had a written section, written exam section, and I thought I was smart. <laughs> so, um, so during the interview, they leave me by myself in the room, and I'm there. I'm being asked like very deep finance questions, also some technical questions. And to be honest with you, I I just sat there. I looked at the paper. I'm like, I, I really don't know the answer to this. And at this time, I don't think was there Google. There was no Google for me to even like <laughs> like pull up and say what's the answer to this. So I decided rather to give in. I wrote under each question. I, I don't know the answer, but if I were to take an educated guess, this is what I would say. Nice. Awesome. I, ch I chose not to leave it black. And you know what? I got called back two days later for a second interview. Nice. And after a few rounds of interviews, I got the job. And I was the first um, black female in that department that got hired. And I was, three of, I was one of three black females in the entire um, firm in London. That's a London branch. They had... They had diversity in the other regions, but since we're just building up this office, I was one of three yeah. that just joined. So that, that was that was like the onset of my career. I spent I spent a long time with that firm, but my journey there was interesting because I started off in a team where I was the only black female, and I had I was surrounded by men. And those that know finance and technology, it's a predominantly, predominantly male yes. male sector. So, you know, at that time when my career started, you can imagine how many women were in there. So it, it was, it was a, an interesting dynamic because one, I was also the youngest. So I, I felt like I was dealt this situation where as much as I wanted to learn, I, I was always having to prove myself over and over again. Yeah. Proving myself because I'm young, proving myself because I'm female, proving myself because, you know, with the race factor as well. But quickly, um, I realized that I was getting in my own head as well, because mm -hmm. most times when I thought people had assumed certain things of me and I didn't have a conversation with them about it, I find out that my assumption was completely, completely off. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I raised that point because getting feedback is very important. Don't, you know, don't always think that people look at you a certain way validated by getting feedback anyways um so I, I grew within my role and within six months of being in that role i was the first person from that group that was actually given an external engagement and by that i mean a client engagement where i had to go to a client site and to put this in context we're talking tier one banks here we're talking the likes of bank of england barclays capital like big banks where i i had to go to a client site I quickly went back to that girl that was sitting in the um, um, interview room, not knowing what, how to answer the question. That was where my mind went. Um, I felt that imposter syndrome. Syndrome. Uh, uh, why, why me? I've only <coughs> been here six months. What do I know? Why am I going? But I didn't vocalize that. I thought it. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out a way to not let that consume me. So how did I do that? Immediately I was put on the client site. Uh, first thing I did was to understand the lay of the land. Who are the decision makers here? And who are the people that ultimately are the stakeholders of this project I've been put on? Found out who they were, you know, built relationships with them, got to know them, got to find out what was important to them. So mm -hmm. I don't spend my time spinning cycles without really knowing what I'm there to do for them. Yeah. So I got to know them. And I got to learn, going back to the learning, I knew there were a lot of things I had no idea about. But guess what? I put in the extra time to learn. I made sure that my learning, I validated it. If I didn't know something, I asked a question. No question was stupid in my mind. And um, I know for some people, it takes, it takes a certain level of confidence to do that because not everybody wants to speak up all the time or appear as if they don't know what they're doing. But yeah. I had mentioned earlier that luckily I was blessed with the confidence to just go and, you know, just learn, absorb, meet people. So yeah. that, that time in, um, in that company did help shape my career to what it is today. I don't know if you want me to go on and tell. No, that's, that's, that's a great background. You've touched on a lot of things then. I was, when I was, I was taking notes of some of the things you said that right. I think um, 
it's very useful for us to expand a little bit more considering who our audience is, <clears throat> especially, I mean, they're young women. Um, they will look at people like us and say, oh my gosh, how can I get there, right? It's very easy for them to think that because we had this conversation um, in the last lecture we had where it's, okay, because you had a background where you grew up in, I mean, you did university outside Nigeria, that privilege of being, of having to establish majority of our career outside Nigeria thinking that hinders or that can impact their career development. So there are a couple of things you touched on that I would love us to expand a little bit more because I think it's very important for, for our participants to, to learn from someone like you who've been able to build the kind of career you've built so far. Um, I had assumption, the three things I wrote down, assumption, confidence, and imposter syndrome. And we'll take that one by one. So we talk about, we keep talking about confidence and the ability, one of the things we touched on last lecture in class was the ability to just know that you're the price. Walk into a room with confidence. When you're interacting with someone, knowing what you bring to the table, that in spite of that self-doubt you might have within your head, that you know you're very confident in who you are, that nobody can make you feel intimidated, nobody can make you feel like you don't belong to the table where you're sitting. Can you touch a little bit on, I know with confidence there's an element of, and I'm saying this because maybe because I know you. Well, I'm like, it's a combination of nature and nurture. Yeah. I want you to touch on, let's remove the nature part. Let's talk about the nurture. For someone who feels like they're not confident, what are the things that you believe that you've had to do over the years, right, to increase your confidence coefficient? So let's okay. start with that. Yeah, that's a very good question. So just focusing on the nurture part, um, the, different, the different things that um, I have used or people have helped me with, so I'll take them in different sections. So one thing I, I tend to do when I doubt myself is to stop. Because when you're doubting yourself, your mind races. You're thinking of different permutations of what could go wrong, what people would say, you know, how you would be perceived. Just stop. You need to stop that noise. Stopping the noise is not easy. So here's a hack for a lot of people. You might not know this. Take off your shoes. <laughs> Stand on cold floor. <laughs> Trust me, that feeling that goes through your body just makes you stay still. So try that. It's worked for me before, especially when I'm going into big meetings where I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to go bomb? But nurturing confidence over time is, is something that requires daily practice. In that daily practice, the first thing you're going to ask yourself, what is your ultimate fear? Is your fear that you would look stupid? Are you afraid that people won't take you seriously? <clears throat> Are you afraid of failure? Understand what your ultimate fear is. Once you know that what that fear is, then take it and assess it. Is that fear valid? So if your ultimate fear is, oh my gosh, I don't want to appear stupid. Okay, let's use that and break it down. For not wanting to appear, to appear stupid means you don't want people to think you don't know what you're saying or you don't know what you're doing. Then look at the subject matter at hand. If it's a presentation, or actually, let's not even bring in having to present. If it's just written work that you have to submit, you don't have to look at that subject matter. What about that subject matter do you know? What about that subject matter don't you know? What effort are you make, making to learn that subject matter? Because the thing about confidence is confidence hardly appears when you know your stuff. When you like, you're in total control of what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, how you're going to like execute it completely. Conf um, confidence is always there because you know you're in total control. <clears throat> Where confidence comes up is when you have lack of control because there are different elements around you that you can't control. That's where your lack of confidence comes. So to nurture yourself to get to that point where you're fully confident, it would require practice, but you have to recognize what is driving your fear. Without that recognition, you're just going to be floating. Some days you might feel more confident because you woke up on the right side of the bed or you, you had very good breakfast that morning and you're like, ready to go. But something from nowhere just comes and throws you off course and you're like, oh my goodness, I thought I had it this morning, not today. Yeah. Don't do it that way. Take the time down, sorry, take the time out, write down what your fear is. What are you afraid of? Then break it down into sections where you're actually analyzing the fear deconstructing that fear. Is that fear valid? Then coming up with a plan to ensure that whenever that fear presents itself, you know how to tackle it. And that's your ammunition to go forward. I love it. Thank you. I hope you guys took notes on that. Then the second one is, I mean, it's very interesting because whether it's men or women, I've found it very interesting in my career that 
the more I've progressed in my life, um, the more I've had people uh, more open about the imposter syndrome. Because when you're starting your career, you don't deal with the imposter syndrome. I, I, I didn't, because it's like you're sort of working your way up. It's when you find yourself in rooms where you're like, these are people I used to admire, and I'm now in the same room with them. I'm having, you're like, so tell me, like, you ex- explain, when did you identify that? You dealt with that imposter syndrome. I mean, I love when I hear people like Obama, when I hear people like Michelle talk about, you know what, I've dealt with imposter syndrome. I'm like, Woof, okay, it's not just me. <laughs> so I wonder, like, like, it's not just me because it's like, although you're very confident in yourself, you're very confident in what you've accomplished in life, that thing still creeps up once in a while. So can you give us an example of when you felt it and how did you identify it and deal with it? Okay, um, so all of that happened in different times because there were times where I was actually going to imposter syndrome but I didn't even have a name for it. Oh, okay. So that was early in my career when I mentioned I was the first one okay. to go on the client side and I okay. felt out of you know, place because everybody that was very senior, we're talking C-suite type um, yeah. folks and, and I had imposter syndrome then but I didn't know it was called imposter syndrome. Imposter I just knew syndrome. I had this feeling where I felt I am out of my depth. So when you feel out of your depth, in some cases, it, it kind of like masquerades itself as imposter syndrome. So, but one, one other situation that really jumped out to me was um, when I moved to New York and I, I was asked to run this, run this team. And I'd led people before in London, I'd led teams in London, so that wasn't a big deal. But what was different at this time around was this, what was at stake? Because we had clients that were spending millions with us, you know, the multi-million dollar portfolios. And the size of the portfolio this time was bigger than what I had dealt with in London. So being in New York, having to deal with these clients, and these clients are super sharp. They're honest, smart. You know, you have to be able to match them toe to toe. And I, I prepare a lot. But there's this one meeting where I thought I had everything nailed down but I walked into the room and I just looked at everybody that was at the table and my imposter syndrome just hit me it hit me because I'm like I, I you know I have to choose my words carefully here but I'm like it's that person that person you know yes what? I know what me? you're talking about <laughs> me I'm here okay no there's something wrong with this picture I shouldn't be here because, <laughs> yeah. but my imposter syndrome was coming because I felt I wasn't as smart as the people that were, were sitting opposite me. I felt I hadn't put in the work or the hours as the people that were sitting opposite me. I just felt I hadn't earned my stripes. I just felt somebody had said, hey, you, I'm going to fast forward you and make you skip all the steps and go to the very top. It didn't make sense because naturally you, things happen in blocks and you build and you build and you build. So that's where it came from. So how did I deal with it? Well, I didn't have much time to deal with it because I was there for a meeting and I'm in the room. So it, it, it goes back to me just drawing deep from that confidence. So if I go back to what I said about knowing, knowing what your fear is and deconstructing it, yeah. me being able to deconstruct my fear and know my triggers allowed me to go back quickly to that place where my source of strength and say, hey, you know what? You're here for a reason. You work for a smart company. They knew what they were doing when they hired you. They knew what they were doing when they sent you to this client. They know what's at stake. They wouldn't have put you in front of this client if they didn't think you were the person for the job. That simple. I dug deep and I got that out. Faced my meeting. We got the deal. And the client's been a client of of that firm forever, as far as I know, because I'm no longer the firm. But yes, it works. But you you need to find that anchor. You need to find that strength. And only you can work on that to find that. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to change the questions a little bit now. I believe that as a woman, there are certain peculiarities to our career that a man, some men probably can identify with because there's certain uniqueness and challenges to being a woman. I mean, I think yeah. you touched on some of it. Um, the imposter syndrome, for example, women tend to experience that more than men, but we women deal with that. So I wanted to touch a little bit more on what are some of the challenges you've encountered as a woman? I mean, you've worked in predominantly male industries. What are some of the other challenges you've encountered and how have you been able to, to deal with it and rise above it without letting it hold you back? Another very good question. Um, so 
I've, I've faced challenges in my career and I continue to face challenges. It's just the way the world is. Yeah. Everywhere you end up, you're always going to face a different type of dynamic that will present itself to you as a woman, which you then have to figure out a way to, to address. So some of the earlier ones I faced were things like being able to contribute at equal measure with my male counterparts. So we're in a meeting and, you know, typically, you know, men have that confidence where even if they don't fully understand the subject matter, if a thought comes to their head, they say it. Yes. As women, and I know I'm generalizing here, so please take this with a pinch of salt, but as women, we tend to stew. We want, we want the perfect sentence. We want the perfect argument. We want the perfect way of, of communicating. We want the perfect eloquence. We know the right pitch. We overthink. And whilst we're overthinking and stewing, the men are running away with the conversation and they're already five points ahead of you. They, you know, and by the time you say what you have to say, somebody else in the room has already said it. So that's one thing that I had to learn how to overcome. It's a challenge that I would say the men didn't necessarily impose on me. I imposed on myself. And I bring that up because as women, we impose certain things on ourselves, absolutely, especially in the workplace. But if I give an example of where it was imposed on me is, again, back to just contributing in a meeting, you get talked over. Because, again, as women, our voices tend not to be very assertive. I know I'm generalizing, but we tend to talk in a soft manner, in a very more composed and common manner. So our voices are not assertive. So even when we do say something, most times people might not hear what we've said. But we receive that information back as we're being ignored. It might not even be the case. It's just you didn't speak up loud enough, right? So when my male counterparts are in meetings and they're talking over me, there are times where you know that's deliberate. When it's deliberate, whoever is listening to this, that is a time where you step in and tell them nicely and calmly, I have something to say, can I speak? In the cases where it's not de- deliberate, and you would know when those cases are, if they didn't hear you the first time, speak up and always let your voice be heard. So one of the challenges I had were validation of work in some cases. So when I'm given a complex, complex project, where they get a male counterpart to validate what I'm doing. I didn't get that. I've already told you I got it. So why why do you need to bring a male? But they would bring a male counterpart on the guise of, oh, the person is more senior, more experienced. Have the person check. Really? And the person doesn't come back with any different feedback from what I already know I've done. So those were some of the challenges. Then you had other challenges with just, you know, being a black woman, in a male-dominated environment, you know, I dealt with those people mispronouncing your name, not even wanting to call you by your name because they find it too hard to pronounce, or people not taking you seriously because they think you're a woman. So in all those instances, you have to be assertive. Assertive does not necessarily mean you, you, you can't do it with composure, you can't do it with calmness, but you have to make your presence Find out what about you, your authentic self, that makes you stand out. Use that to make yourself be seen. So always make yourself seen. I don't know if I answered the question. No, you answered the question very, very well. I mean, thank you very much. And we're we're going to push a little bit more on gender specific because that's one of the advantages of having a woman speaker. Um, So, I mean, what would you say that growing up as a woman, because there's that general um, saying that women grow up in a different school of thoughts than men do, right? And because of that, it shapes the way we approach life, it shapes the way we tackle things. Um, and I know you fall into the category, I consider you sort of similar, we're, we're quite similar in that sense, where yes, there's the school of thoughts that we sort of grew up in, but we're like, forget this, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of creating my own path. So I want you to touch a little bit more on that because I think it's very important for them to understand that in spite of what society might tell you your role is as a woman, you get to own your own destiny and determine what that is for you. Where did you get that from for you and what enabled you to do that? And even in the face of all these challenges, for you to be able to be like, this is all noise and distraction. I still know where I'm going, what my destination is and being able to stay focused and being able to bulldoze, continue to bulldoze your way through. I have to give the credit to my parents. And I know not everybody has access to family or support system like that. But Mm -hmm. in my case, just speaking my truth, I had to give it to my parents because just growing up um, in my household, my parents always made sure that they never distinguished between the men and the women in in our family. 
in terms of gender. So gender wasn't an issue for us, right? I have three brothers and two sisters and we we're all raised with the whole notion of you're strong, you're powerful, you can chart your own course, nobody out there is better than you. I remember my father used to tell me this and this would resonate with a lot of Nigerians. Whoever got first in your class does the person have two hands? Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so me coming second in school was like, oh, okay, that person's not smarter than me. It's just me not working hard enough. Yeah. So, you know, that, that whole being the author of your life was ingrained in me as a child. But at some point, we leave our parents' homes, right? And we hear yes. their voices less. And your self-doubt starts to creep up if you don't have that reinforcement around you. So there are a few things I put in place to just make sure that I was always charting my course. <clears throat> One is I got a mentor, okay. someone who I could sound check with and just okay. make sure that, you know, I, I was always being true to myself. So I, I had that feedback loop, right? You know, ultimately you're your own CEO, if I may use that yes, analogy, yes, right? Yes, your, very, your very first act of leadership is how you treat yourself. Mm-hmm. how you treat your being before you start leading other people how are you treating yourself Absolutely. you're the author of your own path you're your own blueprint your uniqueness is you it's not anybody else's but yours so if you if you remember all those things about yourself make sure you have people around you to help you even validate that and help you chart your course so i got a mentor to help me do that and i also started looking for ways to also ensure that i kept reaffirming the positives of what I bring to the table as opposed to listening to the negatives. And there are different ways to do this, right? I'm not going to go deep to the tools, but there are different ways to do this through um, your your business network, your friendship network, tools, there are different ways to do this. But the larger point is that you owning your individuality is the most powerful thing that you can ever do for yourself. Just owning your path. If you know what it is that you want to do, if you know what you're good at, what you're passionate at, not everybody knows their passion, but if you know what it is that you want to do in life, you have the tools within you to start. And as you journey, you're going to need people around you to help carry you, carry you on on that path, right? So it's very important that you start with yourself, the authenticity of yourself before you can move forward. I don't know if you want me to keep on going on that. No, that's great. No, that's <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm going down meditation. <laughs> no, 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 love it. So, I mean, before I open the floor for the participants to ask questions, so we're, I have two more questions, then they, they can ask you questions. You mentioned mentorship, and for um, there, there are three things that I usually put together when we're talking about um, our support system, not just in career, our life, right? I say mentorship, sponsorship, and your tribe right yes mentorship i have you know you have those who like you said people you bounce ideas off of people who you talk to who you check on the more you advance in your career i think i'm at the point in my career where my sponsors are very important as well exactly yes the ones who advocate for you the one who says no baby wants to get this done baby who are you trying to reach i'll pick up the phone i'll call them for you i'll open the doors for you those are your sponsors then your tribe your personal tribe your friends right for me um and I, I know you're similar in this as well, but I want you to touch a little bit more on this, that for me, majority of my tribe growing up were men, were guys, because I grew up as a tomboy, right? I didn't start having women in my tribe until later on in life. And in the beginning, when I started having women in, in my tribe, it was a little bit challenging for me because my interaction with guys of how men tend to interact is very different from the way women right. interact. So I sort of struggled with that a little bit that I'm like, okay, why are we having a conversation about this is irrelevant, but I know you have a strong tribe and in regards to the tribe and, and getting to know people, I'm going to touch on one more. I'm going to say one more thing and I'm going to turn it over to you. So just to let you guys know, I'm telling the participants, the audience this, because we've talked about networking, being able to develop relationships anywhere. Ijeoma and I met at a mutual friend's birthday party. <laughs> we met at a weekend getaway. And we automatically just connected and clicked. And we realized that we have more in common, that it is differences, and we just sort of got on. And I think it's important for them to hear this because people are constantly saying, where do I meet people? How do I meet people who enrich my life? I consider her part of my tribe now. This is somebody I met at a weekend getaway, not at a professional networking event or anything of that nature. So I want you to touch a little bit on those. You've, touched, you've talked about mentorship. But I want you to talk about what have you done in your career 
to build your tribe, sponsors to get sponsors who are advocates for you and mentors. You can talk about that in different points in your career. Okay. So let me start with the sponsors because um, the sponsor was very, my sponsor was very crucial to bringing me to New York um, from London. So, you know, before you start getting sponsors, mentors, building a tribe, you know, I started out by saying being authentic to yourself. Let me put a different label on that. Your personal brand is important. What do you want people to say or think of you when you're not in the room? If you don't know what your personal brand is, I, I, I urge you to go think about it. It's very important because ultimately that is what is going to be used to build these relationships. You are the owner and the author of your own personal brand. And that is one of the most important things. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care if you like gone to MIT or you like your, your IQ quotient is way up there. If your personal brand is not a real depiction of who you are, then chances are you're not going to get to where you really want to be. You'll get, you'll get somewhere, but you're not going get to get to where you really want to be. So let me take that and you know, apply that to sponsorship since you've covered mentors. So sponsors, ultimately with sponsors, those are people who advocate for you. And when it comes to advocacy, advocacy tends to happen when you're not in the room. When your name is mentioned in any setting, it could be mentioned in a social setting, it could be mentioned in a work setting, but those are people who advocate for you when you're either trying to move your career or you're trying to change your outlook in life or you're trying to you know, just embark on something that you've never embarked on before, but they have the tools and resources to make it happen. Sponsors typically have the, the reach to make this happen, I'll say. They, they have that reach because yes. they too, they've earned their stripes and someone wants sponsored for them. Correct. So I, I went about getting my sponsors through my work, letting my work speak for itself. I knew, I knew what I wanted to do and I knew how I wanted to shape my career at that time. I had, I had an, an, a forward-looking plan. And I know this might be a bit cliche, but I'm going to use it again because it worked for me, your 12-month plan, three years, five years, 10 years, what are you trying to do? Have that. I'm not saying it's not going to change, but at least you have your guardrails to tell you whether you're going down the right path. So I had that, and, and I knew that at some point, I'm going to need a certain type of help to get where, to where I want to be. So I, I went about looking for sponsors, but first I did the work. I let my work speak for itself. So I'll tell you a story towards sponsorship. After my executive MBA, I knew I wanted to leave the firm I was working with at the time. So I go to I go to the, the to the um, um, to the CEO of sorry, the CEO of that particular region, and I mentioned to him that look, I'm interested in doing something different. I have all this knowledge. I want to move on. I love this company, but I really don't see where I fit right now because I think my skills are, have outgrown this organization in some way. And his response to me was, look. We like you. We, we, we think you're remarkable. We think you're a great asset to the company. We don't want you to leave. I want you to go out there and look for something and tell me what it is you want to do. He trusted me. He gave me that, that credibility just because you of my work. I had invested in myself and invested in my brand for people to know what I am capable of. So I, I, I happened to be at a conference with some of my counterparts in New York and I go up to the head of that office only met that person once a long time ago in passing and I go up to the person I'm like I'm interested in moving to New York I hear you might have openings here can we discuss do you know what the person the person told me we've heard of you let's talk and that evening we grabbed a drink and whilst we were having a drink we negotiated my salary and my entire package <laughs> to move to New York wow. from London I was shocked. I didn't even know what was happening. I wish I could have recorded that moment because these are the kind of stories you tell your children and your grandchildren. My, my packer was negotiated on a napkin and we agreed. And I get back to London a few days later and I'm getting emails from HR saying, we're preparing your package. You know, this is what we're going to do to move your blood to New York. I immediately knew that that person was going to be my sponsor going forward because one, the person had heard of me and used my brand to make a decision and made it happen for me, had the influence and the tools to make it happen for me to move from London to New York. And till this day, the person is still my sponsor and has sponsored me for various different opportunities I can't talk about here, but it's, it's a relationship that I have nurtured and formed. So that's a sponsorship. 
Then the tribe, oh, I can't stress this enough, for women, women, you need female tribe. Like, yes. I don't know how to stress this enough. And I know women, we're, we can be complicated, we are complex, but without <laughs> complexity comes with a lot of positive greatness. Women are powerful. There's so much we can do together as a tribe. So my female tribe started right from when I was a kid, and I give credit to my mom because she had she had the same ethos. I used to see her with her female friends. They'll come around the house. They have conversations. They will have meetings. They would have community projects, and I liked that. I saw the value we brought to my mom, and I saw how my mom was changing lives. So just naturally, I gravitated towards that kind of environment for myself. And in, in building friendships, right, you have to be authentic. There is nothing worse than authenticity. And I know I've used authenticity a lot on this, on this, on this point. But, but it's very important. It's very important. If you yeah. be something that you're not, you can't fake the fake for so long. You, you'll get caught out and it's going to be of no value to anybody because you've wasted time doing something that you don't believe in, being someone that you're not, and later down the line, you get found out and you're starting from zero again. So in being my authentic self, it meant that, one, I'm not for everybody, and at the same time, not everybody is for me. So I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not going to go out there to like say, hey, this person seems cool. I'm just going to like, that's not how it works. You have to be intentional with your life. You have to be intentional with the people you surround yourself with. When you're in your teens, when you're in your 20s, that intentionality doesn't really resonate because life is still very, you know, you're going with the flow. You know, you've just gotten out of um, university, you're probably going to grad school. Life is still very loose, to you, for lack of a better word. But as you get older, you begin to realize that the people that you fortify yourself with, your tribe, those are the people that you're going to lean on when it comes to your spiritual health, when it comes to your mental health, when it comes to your professional health, when it comes to any other pillar that you have for your life, your tribe are the people that you will need. So I, with intentionality, have surrounded my people, myself with people that share the same values as me. So if I'm saying I'm authentic and these are my values, people around me share similar values. We might not necessarily share similar viewpoints. So I want to make a distinction. Not because we have the same values means we think alike. That's not true. Some of my closest friends think so opposite from me, but I love it because there's diversity of thought and we respect each other's thoughts. But we have the same values. We come from a place of understanding where certain things matter to us. So, you know, my friends, my tribe, my tribe right now, I call them my, my clan, my sisters, my warriors, <laughs> my Voltrons. We all have very similar values. And as a result of being intentional there, it's really served me well. And I will leave you with this in terms of this particular topic. Don't feel like your tribe has to be 100 people or 10 people. Don't feel like your tribe has to be a CEO of a company or someone who can bring you financial gains or monetary gains. Those are not authentic if you start thinking that way. Just think about your tribe as people who feed your soul, nourish your mind and your being. Start there and see how it organically grows. But whatever you give to your tribe is what you get back. So put in the work. It's that simple. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I really love everything you've said because you've touched on a lot of things that we've talked about already in the program and a lot of things we intend to cover because going back to, although this is a program that you, we want them to be prepared for a career in the 21st century, mm -hmm. we know there are certain peculiarities to being a woman, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you use those things to your advantage versus seeing them as a disadvantage? And mm -hmm. I can't thank you enough. So I'm opening the floor. They have questions. Um, the first question... Dear Ms. Ijama, thank you for your time. I would love to ask, what is the one assumption you often see young professionals, especially in the field of finance, make when you believe that you should never make, never make while striving to build an excellent career? That's it. So I think basically she's talking about um, what are some of the assumptions you've seen young professionals make and um, basically what's your advice um, against dealing with that? Uh, that, that is an excellent question, and it's, it's interesting now with the whole generational, generational divide where you have millennials and, and Gen Xs. So young professionals, what I've seen in my experience and in, in my capacity is there's a propensity to come into a workplace and think that you know it all and you're smarter than people. Mm, yeah. it's, it's, and I see it more often than I, I like, mm. and I, I think 
as much as people bring a lot to the table, one has to appreciate that, that experience, years of experience matters. And nobody wants to be part of an ecosystem where they're made to feel like all those years of experience do not count. So as a young professional, if you enter any organization, your very first question to yourself is, how can I be of value to this organization? Mm. If you don't know the answer to that, speak to your manager or speak to whoever may have the answer and get that. But once you identify that, never put yourself in a position where you're seen as not being somebody contributing to the organization. Mm. Never be, put yourself in a position of not embracing your teammates, your, your workmates. If you ever think that you're better than everybody else there and act it, that's a, that's, that's a distinction. Thinking it is one thing, because you can think it. Like, <laughs> but you actually act that way in the workplace, it's a deterrent. Because ultimately, people want to work with people that they like. If you break down a work structure, you work with people that you like. If you don't like the person, you don't want to work with them. So if you go around with that attitude, it, it doesn't serve you well. And I hope I answered the person's question. But that's no, that's, that's great. Then another question, this one is actually um, investment banking specific. The question is, what skills and professional certifications would you recommend an inspiring investment banker to possess? So just to let you know, one of the things we did when all the participants were coming on board is we asked everyone to express their interest in the industry, in the different industries they're interested in. And we had several who had expressed interest in investment banking. So I suspect some of those participants are the ones asking those questions in terms of, for those who desire to be an investment banker, what are some right. of the professional and um, certifications you recommend they acquire. Okay. So I'll, I'll answer it more US specific, if that's okay. That's fine. Is that okay? No All right. Yeah, that's fine. So um, in the US, we tend to find out for, for IB, they tend to like an, um, analytical minds. So people who've done mathematical engineering, computer science, computer engineering, maths, but anything that allows you to be analytical in your thinking, that, that is one. So those kind of degrees tend to lend themselves well. Also, things like your FINRA license, obviously, depending on what role you're going to be playing in IB, if you're on operations, you're likely not needed, but you're going to be on the trading desk or the likes. So a FINRA license is what you would need. Um, you know, there are folks who go um, have MBA degrees, but I would say an MBA doesn't necessarily lend itself in that direction, more like a master's in mathematics, a master's in engineering. But the more quantitative you are, the more likely that um, an IB job would, would work for you. Okay, that's awesome. Um, we have a question here. This is, okay, we didn't get a chance to touch on this because one thing about her, she keeps talking about being authentic. And one of the things that makes this woman incredible is, I mean, there are many things that I, can, that, that I believe makes her incredible. But apart from being a warrior in investment banking, apart from being a warrior at Merrill Lynch, she has a side hustle. And a side hustle that it's, it's a side hustle, but a side hustle that is a main business of its own. So I will let her touch on that where it's a side hustle where it's by her passion and everything which talks about personal branding. Part of her personal brand to the world is this woman is a fashionista. When I say fashion, I would say I think fashionista even downplays who EGMI is. Oh my, oh my like, <laughs> so I want you to touch because fashion is your passion, right? And it's a passion that you're really you really embodied it's a passion that you found a way to incorporate into other areas of your life and you've also you've also created a business out of that and i know that's the question um someone is asking so how do you touch on how do you balance your your job and i didn't call it a side hustle you have two jobs your job and being an entrepreneur as well and your entrepreneur being something that caters to your passion okay now another good question thank you for asking so there's some people who are very lucky to have discovered their passion early in life and they know exactly what that passion is. That drives them, that fuels them. And they turn their passion into a career. So for those people, I, you know, it's amazing you're able to find that. Some other people don't know what, what their passion is, right? They, they just journey through life and as they experience different things, pick up different interests, they then maybe discover their passion. And some people just go without even finding out what their true passion is. So don't take this as your passion is the one thing that defines your, where your career path should go. However, for me, um, I've always had a passion for fashion or the creative, so to speak. So as a kid, I dabbled in arts. I, I dabbled in fashion. I remember my mother sending me to like 
go learn how to sew and learn how to cut um, pattern cuts and all of that stuff. But I, I did that as a kid, but I never really thought I wanted that as a career. It was just something that I knew that I enjoyed. Um, and with time, as I got older and my career just continued to grow, I knew I now had the space and time to be able to explore those other interests of mine that I had put in the back burner. So Benny had talked about my fashion brand. So about two years ago, I launched a fashion platform and that birthed itself out of two places. One, I wanted to give back to an industry that I truly love, but more so give back to the continent of Africa as a whole, because I had identified a problem area around distribution where a lot of young designers are creating beautiful pieces, but it gets, it doesn't get seen. It's just there, you know, within this small ecosystem and it doesn't transcend beyond that. And I've asked myself, how, how can I contribute to this ecosystem? How can I help? And that was where that came from, where I launched my fashion platform. But I knew that was just one impact of things I, I wanted to do. I, I, love to, I love to instill change where I can. I, and I think, you know, as, we, as you get older and as you think more about your impact in life, one of the biggest things I think people should be aware of is service to others is one way of changing somebody's life. No matter what it is that you're providing as a service, but service to others where you're helping somebody achieve something is one way of changing lives in general. So I looked into other ways I could use my fashion plan to do that. And I am the official uh, mentor for Lagos Fashion Week, um, Fashion Focus Fund's Emerging Designers. So my first mentee uh, was Emmy Casbit, who I mentored, um, helped build his business brand in 2018. Um, last year, I mentored Cynthia Abila. So it's something that I feel is very important, just giving back in my own way. People give back in different ways. So you have to find what you're interested in. But being able to do that and still do my, my full-time job, is that what we call it? <laughs> still be able to do my full-time job is, 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 is something that I truly enjoy. And it's, it's been of great, immense value to me because I'm learning every day from everybody that's around me in the fashion space. There's still so much I, I want to know, so much I want to be able to do. And over time, I hope I'm able to achieve all my dreams and, 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 and objectives in that space. Thank you for your time. In traveling and having a global mindset, how can a person who does not have the opportunity to travel as widely as you have still get the full experience and exposure as someone who's widely traveled? This is a great question. That's a fantastic question. Fantastic. I really want to know who, who said that. <laughs> fantastic. fantastic. And, 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 and I'm glad you brought it up because the ability to travel is not something everybody has. Absolutely. But... You know, the younger generation, and I say younger like I'm old and I'm not, but there are tools now available to a lot of Absolutely. people to give you experiences that you may not necessarily have had access to. So let me just give an example of some of those tools. I am a big believer of reading. There are Thank books. You for <laughs> oh my, like my first experiences yeah. came from books. Thank you, you know, for saying that. <laughs> one, of, one of the first books I read shaped me. I didn't need to go anywhere. The Richest Man in Babylon. That book was everything. I thanks to my dad. But there are books. Access to books are available. You don't even need to buy the books. There are free books yeah. online. Read, read, read. Because what's going on with literature right now is people are using written words to open minds, to show you what's outside be, beyond your community. So books. Also, with technology, technology can help you transport yourself to different parts of the world. So if it's, if it's in Nigeria that you're in, we know there's Wi-Fi access. Have, you know, spend time. See what's going on out there. Use technology to your advantage. Use technology to learn about, about um, other languages, about other cultures. YouTube, there are lots of free classes Free classes on, on, on professional, professional, professional courses. Or you can take free classes on traveling. You can take free classes on language. The point is that you don't have to be physically in that place to learn about that place. You now have the tools to be able to accomplish that. And I, and I hope I did answer that question. No, that's perfect. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we didn't even, we didn't, I mean, 
we didn't have a conversation about this. One of the books, no, the book they're reading right now is Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog, by, okay. Yeah, by Phil Knight, The Story of Nike. And yeah. I've mentioned that one of the, I mean, there's so many learnings in that book about life, about career. But one of the elements of the book too is about travel because you traveled extensively. And basically when you're reading the book, you basically you travel to those locations with him. He's right. so descriptive in the way he describes his travel. And that's exactly what I said to Zayb. Even before I started traveling extensively in life, when I was really young, I discovered the world through books as well. So which is why I really love the fact he said that. Maybe what I can do is send my top 10 book list, if that helps anybody. And, Absolutely. Uh, that would be yeah. great. That would be really, really good. Then final question before we let you go. Like I said, you're the first woman. So I know our session went, went over. Because we have, the, we, have standard, <laughs> we have the standard questions. But I think as a woman as well, there, there are several things you're bringing into the conversation and they can learn from you that um, I know they've not been able to get that from, from, from the male counterparts. Um, okay, there's a question saying, being a black woman who grew, up, um, who grew up abroad, was there a time where you were denied access or opportunity because you were, you were a black woman? Can you think of any? And let, me, let me think, denied access or opportunity because I were a black woman. I would say not overtly in my career, to be honest, not overtly in my career, because no, not, not overtly in my career, but have I seen it happen to people? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's sad to say that it's part of the course these days in the US where there are a lot of challenges with being black and being denied access to certain things. But Fortunately, in my career, it's, that's not been the case. I have faced other challenges mm -hmm. that may have denied me certain things, but not, I won't put it down to race. To race. I won't put it, Thank I won't you. put it down to race. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Thank you. Um, okay. So BMJ's final question before mm -hmm. we let you go. What advice would you give to your younger self? If you could sit down face to face with her today, what advice would you give to her about life and about right. what's ahead of her, what lies ahead of her? Okay. I have to unpack that. But the first thing I would say is life is not a race. It's not. Your journey is unique to you. When you start off, you will be filled with self-doubt. It's okay, but don't let that cripple you. You know, looking back now, I wish I were more, I were more fearless. I would have made other decisions about my life. I might have started my fashion brand sooner. Mm -hmm. I might have you know, done other things sooner. So I would say, be, just remember that it's gonna be okay in the end if you trust yourself, trust what it is that you, you want to do in life and go, go after it. It's also good to remember that ultimately at the end of the day, life would always throw challenges at you. Everybody faces challenges. I don't care who the person is. We all face challenges. There are two different things in terms of we have to respond to challenges. Some people are able to respond to challenges because they might have the security and financial means to deal with their challenges. But it doesn't mean that they, have, they don't have other challenges that are beyond their control. But life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Absolutely. So just take it easy chart out your course and always remember whenever life is coming with its headwinds go back to that center i talked about the core at the beginning yes. believe in that core of you you are the ceo of your life nobody else and god obviously but so just take it easy be, be intentional be intentional in everything that you do you know Oh, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. We're extremely grateful. There's so much wealth of knowledge from you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you would want to say? Is there anything you feel like you've not touched on or anything you want to add that would not have the opportunity to ask you? I think you've asked all, all the questions. What okay. I would say is this. I know we had to unpack a lot during this session. And I do appreciate that you know, people may have more questions or certain things do not resonate with certain people and they want to dig deeper, I am more than happy to, to help, you know. Awesome. So if you need me to come back on later, or if it's, if it's even an email, 
I'm more than happy okay. to respond. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's these kind of sessions that are truly impactful because they're recorded. People can listen to it at their own time, play it back. If they need reassurance and something, they come back to this and listen to it. So please, I'm here to help any way I can. So do, do know that I am available. Thank you so much. I really appreciate no, it. No, thank you as well. This is an amazing class. I want to thank you. I hope somebody got something out of this. I do appreciate it. I believe, I believe a lot of them did. Have <laughs> okay. a wonderful day. Thank you, Jeremiah. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast. To be a part of our journey, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review or potential question for our future guests on bmgaenterprise.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more insight into the acquisition of relevant skills for the fourth industrial revolution.